Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. Join Bruce this week for his conversation with Ryan Jenkins, speaker and co-author of Connectable, How Leaders Can Move Teams from Isolated to All In. During their time together, Ryan shares how he conducted his Gen Z research, Loneliness Project, along with some of the results. Spoiler alert, Gen Z is the loneliness, but not by much. 72% of global workers experience loneliness at least monthly, 55% at least weekly, and social snacking is a thing. Additionally, they explore what worker loneliness means for leaders and employers, the difference between connection and convenience. You may or may not be surprised to learn that loneliness is about more than proximity to people and that connection to mission and purpose is important. Bruce also has Ryan explain the concept of beneficiaries of labor in this informative episode. Welcome to The Indispensables. Today I have Ryan Jenkins. He's internationally recognized keynote speaker, virtual trainer. Um, he's, he's the founder of LessLonely.com. We got to hear about that. And he's written a bunch of books, including Connectable, How Leaders Can Move Teams from Isolated to All In. Ryan Jenkins, welcome to The Indispensables. Thanks for having me, Bruce. Looking forward to our combo. Yeah, yeah, me too. So, so tell us, uh, for, for a lot of people will have heard of you, but for those who are unfamiliar with your work, how did you get to where you are? I, uh, yeah, my career started, I graduated from Miami University in right outside Cincinnati in Ohio, and I studied entrepreneurship, and that ironically landed me a job. Took me to Atlanta. I didn't like working for an organization, but I just figured that was, hey, that was me. I'm supposed to be an entrepreneur. And so I began poking around trying to figure out what, what it is I wanted to do, and I was lucky enough to, to land on uh, speaking. And so I began, created a blog, started a podcast on different topics that I was interested in around the future of work. And then that uh, grew and I started getting asked to speak. And then I eventually started writing uh, for Inc. Magazine and Entrepreneur. And then that finally made my way to the topic that I'm just uh, fully immersed in now, which is workplace loneliness. And we can share later on if you'd like about how we landed on that topic. But I spend my days uh, writing and speaking. And so um, uh, is, is that, you know, some people say you got to find your passion. I typically tell people, hey, whatever your passion is, make sure you also know what you're really good at so you can make enough money to fuel your passion. But sometimes they converge. Yeah, I had, you know, I was I was on the thinking that, you know, if I wanted to be an entrepreneur, I had to create a product or service. My former professor at Miami University, uh, he shared with me, he's like, no, well, you could you could be an entrepreneur, but be a, be a thought leader. And at that point, there wasn't a whole lot of blogs and podcasts at that time. So that completely changed my thinking. So I knew I wanted to go in that direction. And then this one question, Bruce, changed changed my life. And that question was, when in my past was I affirmed for a talent or skill? So when in my past was I affirmed for a talent or skill? Because too often as humans, we kind of blow past those, those, those times when we get compliments or people go, wow, that was really, 
good what you just did there. <laughs> and so I began reflecting on all the different times in my life. When did I, when did I have a standout performance? And it was time after time it was me in front of people teaching about something. And so I knew, okay, there's something in this public speaking thing. Let me go see if that's something I could do. So it wasn't really a passion. It was just a natural talent and skill that I had. And so I nurtured it. And eventually I found uh, my passion in some of these projects and topics that I've become quote unquote an expert in. Yeah, because uh, of course, if you want to be a professional speaker, you got to be really good at speaking, but then you also have to have something to speak about. <laughs> and you got to have an audience that wants to listen. <laughs> and then it helps to be famous. Those those are the three components. So so I know that um, one of the things you um, have written about is, is an area where you and I overlap, which is about young people in the workplace. And I know you've written about the millennials. You wrote a book about the millennials. I know you've written a book about Generation Z. I describe them as strange visitors from another planet. But tell me, uh, how did you do your research on Generation Z? And I know that is part of what led you to the Loneliness Project. Yeah. So yeah, I became really interested in generations as a millennial coming into the workforce. I saw you know, a front row seat to just seeing all, all this talk and all these different generations pointing to the emerging generation at the time, millennials saying, wait your turn. You know, This is the way we've always done it. It just drove me up a wall. I'm thinking, and I understood that we were on this, the edge of this new world of work that was coming, right, with the digital age. And so I knew that sitting around pointing fingers at different generations was not helping organizations. So I wanted to insert my voice and to help unpack this idea and, and to help people understand the emerging generations so that they had data points into what's next, right? The future of work, essentially. And understanding these behaviors and nuances were going to give them insights on how they needed to position their organization, their communication, their branding, their leadership, et cetera. Um, so that's really what I, I was super fascinated with is let's stop pointing fingers, right? We're better together, but let's take cues from the emerging generation so that we can prepare ourselves for the, for the, again, for the future of work. And so my work stemmed with millennials and then Gen Z. I mean, it was just seemed like you turn around all of a sudden there's another generation entering the workforce. Uh, again, they're, they're, they seem very different from other generations. And so my clients kept asking me more and more about Gen Z. And so I really decided to dive as far as I could into that conversation and, and wrote a book about it. Um, that was, that came out I guess two and a half years now at this point. Uh, but you're right. It, when I was studying Gen Z, I, f I figured out they were the loneliest generation. And that was troubling to me. And I figured out, I wanted to figure out why that was happening. And then how could we help, right? How could we solve this, this problem for, for this emerging generation? And so I began studying as much as I could around loneliness. And then the pandemic happened. And I took all this loneliness research and I brought it to my clients thinking no one would want to talk about this. And it turns out they all wanted to talk about it. I was floored with the appetite. It became my most popular program and people kept wanting it. And the new clients were coming in saying, hey, can we talk about Gen Z or generational stuff? And I'd say, how about loneliness? And they were like, yes, let's do, let's do that instead. And so there was something there. And then, th then it kicked off the research into hyperdrive. And we studied about 2, 000, over 2,000 global workers and worked with 50 leaders. And now we've worked with over 100 organizations on helping them unpack loneliness and how to lessen it amongst the workforce. And so, yeah, all that started with me studying generations. I still dabble in the generations, love that conversation. But this loneliness one just seems to be the right fit and the right time for it. And excited to broach that topic with your audience and the whole world. Yeah, I, I, I want to talk with you about loneliness. Um, and I think the link to Gen Z is natural, right? That Gen Zers are the generation that grew up in these 
cocoons atomized from one another, protected if they're lucky by helicopter parents or helicopter teachers or helicopter parent posse members. So they're in this protected cocoon. And yet here they are connected to a worldwide network of information and people through handheld supercomputers. And so they're both uniquely connected and uniquely isolated. And meanwhile, of course, uh, if you're 20 years old right now, you, you grew up not in the go-go 90s. You grew up in the 2000s where fear of war, terrorism, environmental collapse, economic ups and downs, now the pandemic. So, so I think Generation Z is a fascinating case study and, and so interesting that it led you into this loneliness. What were some of the other insights about Generation Z that led you to loneliness? Because now it's like, we're all Gen Zers now. Right. We're all working from our bed. Yes. Great insights, Bruce. And yeah, Gen Z was the loneliest generation. That's what I learned back you know, a few years ago in 2019. And through our research, they're still the loneliest generation, but not by much because everyone's lonely. According to our research, 72% of global workers experience loneliness at least monthly with 55% saying at least weekly. And it's people in the tops of the organizations, the bottom of the organization, everywhere in between. So we experience this all. And it I should say too, it's not shameful because it's it's a universal human condition. We all experience it. It's simply just a signal that we belong together. And so we've got to fight for this now more than ever. And you're right, Gen Z has had a particular tough tough road because uh, they've grown up in these cocoons, to use your word. You know, they've gotten kind of a false sense of connection when in, when they haven't got full nourishment like they need. And this is actually what they call social snacking, right? So through social media, you get this sense, you get you just snack enough to push down that need for loneliness, just enough. And what we need is we actually need nourishing conversations and nourishing relationships. And that can't happen on uh, on a device and through social media. So um, we've got to start balancing these things. And this is impacting all of us, right? It's not just a Gen Z thing, but of course, they've grown up with it and oftentimes don't know anything beyond that. I mean, this generation, this always makes my hip hurt when I, when I say this, even as a millennial, but Gen Z is, is younger than Google. They've never known a world that's been, hasn't been curated into a blank search box. Isn't that incredible? And they, they haven't they don't know a life where a smart device has been outside of arm's reach. So they're fully connected yet disconnected in so many ways as well. But we're, you know, we're all susceptible to this. And I think at the crux of it, what's happening is we're, we're choosing convenience over connection. And we're all guilty of this. Humans, we, this, this is a tough decision we've had to make. And in the book, we use the example of ATMs, right? When ATMs, before ATMs, you'd, you'd stay in line at a bank and you'd talk to maybe some fellow customers or a bank teller or you know other bank employees. Like, And even I, I told this story live uh, about a year ago, and there was actually a gal in the audience that came up to me. She's like, I was actually a bank teller before the ATM. And she said, when we'd come in, uh, it was like a party. It was like a, it was like a, a social event every Friday at the bank. People would become cashing their checks and they'd stand around and converse with people. ATMs get introduced. And now she said that that slowly dissipated and people didn't connect. And she lost track of all these different people because now there was this convenient device that was that was somewhat eroding connection. And now ATMs come in all different forms, right? They come in social media and mobile banking and meal delivery and all these other things. And we have to understand if we're choosing convenience, which isn't bad, but if we're choosing convenience, there's oftentimes a social cost and that cost is you know our health at times because connections is just critical to our mental and physical well-being 
Yeah, I mean, uh, human beings have been wired to connect with each other since we were gathered together in hunting bands uh, chasing after wildebeests, right? And now the technology has accelerated faster than we can possibly evolve. Uh, what are what are business leaders thinking about when they're thinking about these perpetual staffing shortages? The ATM is a perfect metaphor. They, everyone needs an ATM for their service, right? So supermarkets have discovered this. They, they've figured it out, their, their uh, automated checkout. And increasingly, we're going to have more and more robots uh, with whom to interact. And unless we get them a personality, we're going to just deal with more and more robots and get more and more lonely. I think you're really on to something. I mean, there was a book many years ago called Bowling Alone. You know that book? I haven't read it. I know of it. Yeah. I mean, and it was an earlier iteration of this sort of breakdown of bowling leagues. It used to be like when I was a kid, there were bowling leagues and people, you, you, nobody bowled alone, right? And so, so there was this book, Bowling Alone, about the breakdown of our old sort of social infrastructures. You know, who do we hang out with anymore? And of course, with uh, hyper-parenting now, a lot of people's social worlds just revolve around their children and their children's friends and maybe those, those friends' parents. But, but I think it's, it's, it's an ingenious insight that you're tapping into. And I think now, after two years, uh, we're all lonely. So let me ask you a question, Bruce. If I was to hand you a button that said, delete all technology, would you, would you push that button and delete all of the world's technology? No. No. Yeah. <laughs> and that's normal. Like That's like typical response that we get. Or if, if the button said, delete the internet... Would you push that button? Most people say no. That gets to the crux of like, yes, technology is advancing, but it's it's going to continue to advance and humans are going to continue to adopt it as long as the benefits slightly outweigh the risks. So yeah, there's going to be more robots. Metaverse is likely going to be a thing. And so what we have to understand though, is I think we have to emphasize and constantly reinforce that human connection cannot be lost in all this. Yes, we're going to be continuing to use our devices and engage in technology because it's useful. It's useful to humanity, but we also have to use this new margin. And, and if we're using this technology for convenience, that means we're, we're saving time somewhere else. So let's use that time to actually connect with others. So let me give you a good example. I was, I was talking at a conference right before COVID happened, and there was a gentleman that spoke before me, and he was talking about telemedicine, if he only knew how popular that topic was going to be in a, a few short months. But he was talking about this artificial intelligence that doctors can put in their ear that can diagnose a patient's cough with greater accuracy than the human doctor. And it's fascinating. And then, so I spoke to him after, after he was done back behind stage, and I said, if this, you know, if this is happening, what happens to the role of the doctor moving forward? And his insight was really telling, and I think it's true. He said, doctors will become, they'll revert back to who they were 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, and they're going to rely on the technology to do the heavy lifting, right, to, to more accurately diagnose x-rays, et cetera. And the doctors are hopefully going to have more margin where they can display the very human elements of compassion and sympathy to their patients. So that's the goal, right? The goal is not anti-technology. The goal is to use technology thoughtfully so that we can create more space and time and energy for us humans to do only what we do best, which is connect with each other. And we're all craving that, whether we know it or not. Research after research after research shows it. And so we have to be fighting for it and vigilant. And we have to keep one eye on the technology and one eye on our mental and physical well-being as it relates to connections. 
So, so I have so many questions. What you're saying is so interesting. And so I'm wondering if you've read uh, Noah Yuval Harari uh, and, and, and that's worth getting into, but he wrote, you know, Sapiens, which is a, a, a beautiful and easy to read, but exhaustive and fascinating history of our, of our species. And then the second book is Homo Deus. And it's all about how we're going to be more and more integrated with machines and so on. But his concern is that in so doing, a whole bunch of people are going to be irrelevant. They're going to have nothing to do. That if so many of us are replaced by robots, I'm just thinking there's a two-part problem here, right? There's some of us are going to have access to all this technology, but a whole bunch of people are going to be rendered potentially, what if they're rendered irrelevant by artificial intelligence and robots and, and machines? Now, maybe that is a question for a pastor rather than a question for for, for business business guys like us. Yeah, no, I think you're, you know, it's, it is so fascinating to think about. And, you know, it's, 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 I, I've been following uh, Jason Pfeiffer recently. He's the editor in chief at Entrepreneur Magazine. He's got a great new newsletter that he's doing, but he, he does these really great comparisons. And one of his recent articles was about how the New York Times had written a piece about when automobiles were just coming out, that they were going to rewire our brains. And, and most of folks that drove cars would end up in, you know, needing psychotherapy and, and being mental institutions. And it was just like, that was written, uh, you know, like how, how, you know, naive of us. And so it's so hard to, to project in the future on, on what all these things are, are going to do. But I, I do just think that humans are so resilient and we're so good about just finding ways to, to work and there's so much purpose and in work. And so I think we'll find ways to add value and to show up for each other. And, you know, as these machines begin taking more of the, the work that's too dangerous, too dirty, or humans aren't that good at anyway. I like to think, and this is my optimism side, that we'll, we'll find ways to, to, uh, to add value to each other, create things where, where there is, it is better. I mean, you know, we're all standing on the shoulders of past generations, right? And it's just, uh, it's pretty extraordinary what we've done. And, and we, we, all we do is just solve problems, right? It's really what we do. That's the purpose of gathering together. That's always what we've done. We've gathered together to solve problems. First, it was we gather together to create fire. Then we gather together to pool resources, to watch each other's back for safety. And that's what we continue to do is get together to solve problems and you know, now I'm standing in a room that has electricity and it's temperature controlled. And now I'm comfortable where I can start looking towards other problems to solve for future generations. So I don't think that answers your question. Just me pontificating. On um, so, so, so your point is, look, technology is here to stay. And by the way, technology is as old as, as humanity, right? Technology and globalization for that matter. Hu human beings have been uh, globalizing and, and implementing new technologies since uh, we figured out how to make a fire, right? And and it is now making it possible for us to stay in our cocoons and to be connected only through verisimilitude, through through computers and so on. What are some of the the costs if we're all, a bunch of us are going to stay remote? How are we going to leverage this? But maybe your answers go even deeper than that. Yeah, great question. And I'll start with the, the business case. So lonely workers are seven times less likely to be engaged at work. They're five times more likely to miss work due to stress or illness. And they're twice as often to be thinking about leaving their employer. So at the core of this, this is a talent issue. And if your goal is to retain your talent, 
Um, this is a, a lever to pull. And what a lot of our clients and readers are telling us is that they feel very empowered by this conversation because it doesn't take a sweeping, massive change and culture change and trying to convince others to do that. Literally, it takes one individual to start you know, weaving more connection on a team. Whoever's listening to this, it just takes you to start this trend to creating less loneliness and more belonging. People are, are, are often uh, blown away at how little effort it takes to move someone from feeling disconnected to connected. So the research shows only 40 seconds. So in a 40 second, in 40 seconds between a two person interaction, if both parties feel seen in that moment, it only takes 40 seconds to move someone uh, from feeling disconnected to connected. Example after example with organizations taking five minutes at the top of a meeting to have folks uh, share more about their their personal lives or non-work related things can weave more connection. There's just subtle things that we can do to draw a group together. But I'd like to answer your question around kind of this idea of, of remote work. And, you know, of course, you know, it's here to stay and it worked before COVID remote work was working. It's here to stay. But what I'm really cautioning a lot of organizations right now is to pause and ask the question that revolves around what we were just talking about is where am I choosing convenience instead of connection? Because I think what's happening right now is individuals are choosing remote work because it's convenient, right? You don't have to commute. You can just show up, wear whatever you want. And organizations are kind of choosing this route because, it, well, we're already in it. So let's the convenient thing is just stay in this remote fashion. Yeah, not to mention uh, reduce your real estate footprint, which a lot of CEOs are telling me, I've been spending millions of dollars a year on this. How little did I know? And all everyone was saying, I want to work from home. And I was saying, you want to work from home? Well, you can come into the office. And now they're all like, hey, maybe they're on to something. Yeah. Oh, gosh. There's a really interesting generational component we can talk about later if you'd like. But that's yeah, you reminded me of that. And that's certainly what's happening there, too. But it's this idea that, you know, we're choosing again, we're choosing connection over convenience. And I, I don't think we're intentionally doing it. If you're an individual that's working remotely, you need to start figuring out ways to cultivate more connection. If you're an employer that's creating these back to the office or remote work plans, we need to be thinking about connection. You have to make it part of part of the equation because if not, uh, you, the team's just going to pull away. They're going to be more isolated and they're going to be way more susceptible to jump teams. And you're going to have a tough problem creating culture and really creating anything of, of real substance or, or creating a sense of belonging inside the organization. Some business leaders are saying, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to tell people we want you to come to the office, but it's up to you when. Some are saying everyone's going to be here on Wednesdays and Thursdays. Some are saying, please pick your in the office days. What I think is a more sensible thing is let's get together for good business reasons right? What are the good business reasons for us to get together? And a sense of belonging might be one of them. What's your guidance for folks who are managing a remote workplace? What should they do to give people opportunities for connection and, and, and still maintain the convenience? Because I love the, the antipodes you're setting up, convenience versus connection. I think that's a really good model. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I, I I think you and I are on the same page there with let's get together for good business reasons. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I think in my mind, and again, this is easier said than done, is you know, you get together, essentially the the work happens remotely in your, your home office, but the the uh, strategy meetings, onboarding, and these other kind of bigger moments. Uh, happen together. And another good way to think about it is thinking about uh, firsts. 
your first day on the job, well, that's a, that's a very, that's an emotionally fused moment. That should be one that is included in, in an in-person activity somehow. Your first time uh, hitting a certain milestone or an anniversary. Some of these things can be subtle cues on, hey, we need to get together. And a good example of this is um, uh, the company Automatic. They've, they're the ones behind WordPress that built. So, you know, most of the internet's uh, websites are on Automatic's product, which is WordPress. And they have a thousand person company and they've they've been remote for as far back as, as any of us have been talking about remote work. They're fully remote all over the globe, but once a year for a week. So once a year for a week, they all get together and that's where they just are super intentional about creating moments, culture, connecting people. And then they use that week that kind of gets them through the rest of the year and helps them also kind of put a stake in the ground as this is who we're about. And this is the type of culture. This is what we want to do in the future, et cetera. So yeah, you've got to be way intentional about it. And it doesn't just happen. I mean, just ha- just getting people in the same room like doesn't quite work. You've got to be intentional about asking the right questions, creating the right environments where these connections can be had. So way intentional. I like that. And let's 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 use that as an anchor. You got to be way intentional about getting people together. And does it have to be in a group? Does there have to be a critical mass? Or can individuals and pairs be way intentional about getting together themselves as well? And are there are there good? Uh, what are the right ways and the right questions? There's uh, something that we we've seen a lot of our clients do. We call it the the fishbowl exercise, where there's just a, a fishbowl of 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 questions, basically icebreakers, right? And so they use this fishbowl. This could happen in an in person meeting, right? Right before the meeting kicks off, you pull one of those you know, an icebreaker question that just draws something unexpected out of out of each other. And the purpose here is to see the human behind the job, right? Because we can't often, it's called the lesser mind is what is what psychologists call it. That if we don't understand somebody or how they operate or their experiences or their background, we often think that their that their experiences or perspective is lesser than ours. And so we have to draw out these things if we want to create more community and more connection amongst our teams. So that fishbowl is a good example. You can obviously do that uh, virtually as well. And you're just trying to get people talking so we can hear what's on each other's minds so that we can see that it's, I, I, I'd never heard that term, the lesser mind. Philosophers call it the other, the, the problem of other minds, which is you don't know what's going on in there. <laughs> yeah, right. It, yeah, it's totally true. I, all, I've only known what it's been like to be Ryan Jenkins. That's the only perspective I've ever known. And so to draw that out, and that's, that's why we wrote the book for leaders, because we know leaders are the ones that can facilitate this type of connection. What kind of question would be in the fishbowl? Is it like, what was your favorite TV show growing up? Could it be that personal or that non-business focused? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it could be any, anything, anything you want like that. We, we, the example I was about to share was uh, this one company. They call this exercise the inside scoop. They have one person every week during their all hands just share something non-work related. So it's kind of like this show and tell. And they do this remotely. And they had this one gal. She, she was always considered this very intense researcher on the team until she showed a picture of her marathon training. And then everyone now saw her as a very extreme athlete that is very dedicated to this, this craft outside of work. And now they thought they, they saw her as this, you know, very detail oriented researcher. Now they saw this whole other humanness to, to, to this individual. And you can imagine that created more connection. There was more um, opportunities for other people to connect with that if they also had a similar interest. And so it, it literally can be as simple as share, share something that's non work related with your colleagues. 
Got it. That's that's so interesting. And 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 of course, I find that interesting and fun. I, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. One of the things that I'm always telling business leaders is that, you know, there's way too much talk in the workplace about everything under the sun. There's not enough talk about the work that needs to get done. And so we're, we're shooting the breeze. And then when the work comes up, we get all serious and we're all, oh, now we don't have time to, to talk this through. But what I'm hearing from you is kind of a countervailing principle, which is, you need to know who people are personally on some level. Yeah, it goes a long way, especially when we're, if we're in a remote environment, right? The conversation you would normally overhear, you know, if you were on the same floor in an office, you know, you can use that as context for those individuals. You don't have that anymore, right? Sometimes you only see what you can read in an email of some individuals. And so we do have to be that much more intentional when the teams are dispersed or remote. But I think too, having a plan and a structure, because you're right, if, if we don't have a plan or structure, and if we're not someone that can stick to the agenda, those meetings can get off track. And we're, you know, all of a sudden double booking and trying to schedule more meetings to cover what we should have already covered in the first meeting because we were talking too much personal stuff. So yeah, I think, yeah, I don't think it's an either or, I think it's an and, but yeah, certainly we have to to rein it in and understand why we're here in the first place. But the, you know, the, the why we wanted to focus on work to, on, to help with loneliness, probably should define loneliness for your listeners because it's not what they probably think. Loneliness isn't the absence of people, it's the absence of connection. So you, you know, we can all be experienced loneliness if we're in a crowded office with other people, because if we don't feel connected to those individuals, we then feel detached or isolated. So it's not the absence of people, it's the absence of connection. And why I think work is the best place to tackle loneliness is because that's where we spend most of our waking hours. That's one. But also that's where we can actually connect with team members. We're actually connecting with customers and clients. We're connecting with an organization, right? We're connecting with purpose. We can connect with the work itself. There's so many loneliness lifelines that we can leverage to create a healthier us and ultimately a healthier communities and healthier humanity. And we're not just shooting the breeze, right? Because if you're saying, hey, what program did you watch last night? Ho-hum. Or, hey, let's have a pizza party, but I'm lactose intolerant. You know, it's as opposed to like, I guess we could bridge our loneliness gap by talking about the work we have in common. That it doesn't have to be about personal things like, hey, you work here. This is how you feed your family. Me too. I work here too. Gosh, we have a lot in common. Not only that, but that stuff we really have in common. Maybe we can build connection and feel good about ourselves and about each other by talking about that. Yeah, great example, Bruce. And there's, you know, again, that's why we wanted to write this book for leaders. It's useful for anybody that's wrestling with loneliness or wants their team to experience better connection. But for leaders, there's other there's other things that they can leverage to, to lessen loneliness, one of which is helping be clear, right? Clear direction. Uh, we studied astronauts uh, in the for the book because they're <laughs> these are professionals that are extremely isolated, 250 plus miles away from Earth. And we studied uh, Christina Koch. She's the she's the woman that spent the longest continuous time in space, and she spent over 320 days in outer space on the International Space Station, where she saw a whopping 11 people <laughs> over that time span. So you can imagine isolating, right? And so how she gets over loneliness or isolation, she keeps loneliness at bay is through a clear direction. She gets up and she knows exactly what she's got to do that day. And she's got a very clear picture of the purpose of why she's up there. And so that's the job of leaders too. If you want to keep people connected to their work and, and, fully at work, you got to give them clear direction. Another one is to connect them to to purpose. And a great way to do that is what we call uh, identifying the beneficiaries of the labor. How do you specifically identify the person that's benefiting from the labor that you're doing? 
So studies show that that doctors can actually, they'll, they'll be more accurate reading an x-ray if they've seen a picture of the patient. Cooks will actually perform better if they actually see the people that will be eating their food. So if we can draw a straight line to the work we're doing, to the people benefiting from that work, creating more purpose, but also it lessens loneliness as well because we feel connected to the, the work and the, the purpose of that work. So there's other things that we have to be thinking about as it relates to lessening loneliness and creating more clarity and, and more purpose at work can be uh, options. I think that's so powerful and I love so so the clear direction point I think is is not as intuitively obvious to someone unless they think about a time where they've been giving a given a difficult task responsibility or project and no instructions no clarity about what's expected. Well, I always tell people like if you go to Ikea and buy a piece of furniture, you dump out all the pieces on the floor and then you look at it and you think, okay, I got to build a dresser. Imagine if you don't have instructions. A lot of that feeling you could say it's like you're feeling lonely, right? You're in over your head. You're, you, you've got a responsibility. And, and particularly if your connection to other people is you're supposed to put this thing together and deliver for them. If you don't have clear direction, if you don't have a plan, of course that can make you feel terribly abandoned, which is another uh, way of being more specific about what kinds of loneliness, right? Feeling abandoned is a special kind of loneliness. What I think is more intuitively obvious, but not one that a lot of people would think of. The people who will be the beneficiaries of the work. That's such a nice way to talk about purpose, to talk about mission. So, you know, if I'm working with the YMCA or the United States Army or the Red Cross, or even, as you say, doctors, healthcare workers, nurses, you know, okay, the mission-driven nature of their work is clear. But what if um, you're an insurance agent or you're an insurance underwriter? Okay, well, you're helping people actuarialize risk. That's super valuable to someone who, right? What if you're working at Walmart? You know, you say, well, oh, oh, you know, I'm helping some shareholder in, in Bentonville, Arkansas, you know, get richer or something. But, but what if you're saying, no, I'm, I'm, I'm helping somebody get the product they need. So thinking of the beneficiary of the labor, I think that's a brilliant model and a brilliant just framework for people to be able to think more richly about mission. We, we looked at this one organization that delivers porta potties, and as you can imagine, that's you know not a it, it could be a job that's just difficult and and dirty and messy and not desirable for many. And we were we were helping them unpack who are the beneficiaries of the labor, and we toiled and toiled and toiled, and eventually it was actually families, right? It was communities because when they deliver these porta potties to a construction site, that allows that construction site, which, which say be a school or hospital, can be built faster because those uh, porta potties are in place. Sometimes we just got to spend a little. Extra extra time to draw that line to make that connection so that we can really boost engagement and connect with, with our work. But man, I mean, if you're a construction worker and you got to hold it and you got to keep holding it and you got to keep holding it, uh, and now there's a porta potty, you are a direct beneficiary, and that is no small thing. Um, uh, so, so what you're saying, I think, is so important because the idea of you know what we don't want. I mean, at least I don't want is to have to go tell clients, okay, so now that everyone's working remote. Yes, we want them focused on the work, but they need to get together now and then in order to just shoot the breeze and talk about their favorite TV show and their memories from childhood or the fact that they are a marathoner. They need to get together and talk about personal stuff like, 
for some reason that that alone it doesn't ring true or hey let's get to let's get people together and have them do trust falls and build human pyramids like that can't be you know i think a lot of people would find that to use your your model a huge inconvenience so now i got to drive an hour so i can go build a human pyramid and hear about how somebody ran a marathon and somebody else knows the theme song to gilgan's island so, so, so I'm glad that 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 the ways of building connection can be about the work and can can be about the the, the purpose of the work and can be about creating clarity, um, not just of mission, but clarity around execution. You know, some of what I was starting to think about is, you know, with connection at work and loneliness. You know, do you have a position about romance at work? <laughs> um, no, I don't. Um, and we never we didn't really cover that in the book, but I'm curious where you're going with this. I mean, I'm just thinking the opposite of uh, loneliness might be, oh, yeah, I can't wait to get to work because that's where my secret romance is or, or, or whatever. I mean, lots of people meet their significant other at work. But but I, I do notice that you mentioned the Gallup organization's best friends at work research, which I always joke about that a little bit. Although I do think that there's some real salience to the idea that if you have someone at work who's a best friend, you know, that does that is meaningful. But I just wondered, like, how far does that go? You know, we were very clear in the book not to talk about friends and creating friendships at work, because I don't know if that's always useful. Right. That could be a deterrent in many ways. Really, you know, the idea is connection. Let me let me take one step back and I'll come back to, to this conversation because I think it's important to note too that that one of the the hallmarks of why this is such, such an important conversation is in the research that we unpacked. When humans were put through an experience of exclusion, their brain lit up. That's not surprising. But it was the same part of the brain that actually experiences physical pain. What happens when people feel isolated, when they feel alone and experiencing loneliness, they're actually, their flight or flight kicks in, right? Part of their brain is saying, something's wrong. We need to address this. If you have a team that is experiencing loneliness and is feeling isolated, they are not there at work, right? They are, they are tending to something else and they are not able to fully show up for their team members, their clients, their customers. And so that is a problem. So if you want to increase engagement, addressing loneliness is not a soft topic. It's a, it's a, it's a dire one. That's brilliant, by the way. And also what's the opposite of exclusion is inclusion. We're trying so hard to create diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, diversity alone, if, if people of diverse backgrounds feel excluded, then the diversity is, is, is just a gesture, right? Diversity leads to much better outcomes if everybody feels included. Uh, and so to think of this whole connection work that you're doing also dovetails with this super powerful uh, aspect of, of also giving you a way to make people feel included. That's, that's, that's huge. Loneliness is at the intersection of inclusion and wellness, right? To where where it's it's so much part of our mental and physical well-being. In fact, the the longest study of adult development done by Harvard, it's still going on. It's over 80 years long. I'm sure you know about it. What they found after 80 plus years, it's still going on today and over 2000 people the single greatest contributor to a long and healthy life that they found is your quality quality relationships. So it's our social relationships that are contributing to our not only our mental health but our physical health. And again, our argument is let's let's make work a space where we can have these connections. But back to that friend friendship and perhaps even romance at work. I recently heard a conversation with uh, Carol Tomain, I believe her name is. She's the current CEO at UPS. Podcast host asked her, you know, what, what surprised her about coming back to be a, a CEO? Because she retired for being the CFO at Home Depot. Then she came to be the CEO of UPS, 
during 2020, the middle of 2020. Can you imagine? <laughs> so she's an incredible woman. And she, what she said to that question of what surprised her about being a CEO, she said, people told me it was really lonely, but I had no idea how lonely it was. You'd expect me to say, what well, we need to be less lonely. You need to connect with the organization. And what I heard the podcast host say is that's the way it should be. And this is a very uh, forward-thinking and elite leader in the host that I respect greatly. He said it should be that way. And I think what he was saying is because you don't want to create friends at work, especially at that level, to where decisions that are being made looks like it's it was influenced by the friendships that you have. That makes sense to me. I think what needs to happen, though, for all of us, even if you are like the CEO of UPS, is we need to still draw more connections, right? We still need to show a little bit more vulnerability at work so people can, can see that we're a relatable human and not just this very driven leader. And so I think those are ways that we need, still need to do that. And, and that just popped in my head because I don't think having friends is the answer. Even though Gallup says, if you just have one friend at work, you're much more engaged at work. That makes sense. But I don't think the answer here is to create more French friendships at work. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to agree. And I always think, well, sure, you may be more engaged at work, but engaged doing what? Talking about the football game over the weekend? Talk, hey, I heard you were getting a bike. Hey, do you want to go out for a beer after work? Like, okay, go out for a beer after work and do your work. But maybe I'm being cynical. But but I also do think that if you're a leader, whether you're, you, you're the CEO or anyone else, and you're friends with someone at work, and you have power in relation to that person's career and livelihood, and, and you're that person's friend, that's a huge complication to navigate. So I, I, I think that's right. It's very complicated. What I love about what you're saying and what's, what's in your book is all of these ways to feel connection with other human beings that, that are all about the work, the, the, the beneficiaries of your labor. I love that. The shared mission, the, 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 the clarifying for each other expectations and next steps. What are we, how are we relying on each other? I mean, one of the things that's going on in the workplace today is everybody is relying on each other. We're all interconnected. There's a collaboration revolution going on. Having somebody rely on you can feel like you're being inundated by requests. Having to rely on someone can feel like you're trying to rely on someone. You don't know them. You don't know who they are, where they are. And, and they're inundated by requests too. So, and you're not their boss. So maybe you can't hold them accountable. So, so there's there, there's all this all this traction, all this interaction, all these ways in which these interactions can make one feel lonely or can make one feel connected. And that's what I'm learning from you here, that we have all of these venues and all of these interactions. We have to rely on our boss. We have people who report to us. We have our colleagues, vendors, customers, right? So it's not like there's a shortage of interactions. It's that these interactions can either make us feel lonely or they can make us feel connected. And, and I think the learning that you're offering here is, wow, if you, if you engage in these relationships in ways that make you feel connected, you're going to do more work better and faster, and you're going to feel a whole lot better. Yes. Well said. Very well said. And I think, um, you know, another way to connect with others and that's often overlooked and in the book, we did a whole chapter on it. It's my favorite chapter, but it's this idea of be interruptible. Uh, one of the, one of the biggest deterrence to loneliness or biggest deterrence of us connecting with others is busyness. 
time constraints severely limit our ability to connect with others. And so we often encourage folks, just be more interruptible, right? Uh, We're all busier than ever before. We seem to be scheduled to the gills, but especially for leaders, right? If you get interrupted by someone on your team, how can you turn your attention to them and be present in that moment? I'm not saying do this all the time, but I think there's probably more opportunities that we're not thinking about or more opportunities that we should be a little bit more interruptible and be fully present with folks. Because that presence, when you feel seen and heard in that moment, we've all experienced it. We know what it looks like when someone is or isn't in that moment with us. That's something that we're already doing. We're already in the presence of others, but how connected, how how dialed in are we? Because here's the other important distinction too. I think to your point, we're all communicating more than ever before. You know, email, text, instant message, all these things, but communication isn't connection. We experience that differently in the brain. So we're communicating more than ever, but are we actually connecting? Probably not as much as we think we are or that we we probably should for our own mental health and, and physical well-being. Yeah. And when you get interrupted, either the building's on fire and then your whole day is gone, or when you get interrupted, you're just trying to get rid of the interruption and get back to what you were doing. Uh, one of the pieces of advice I give to folks is when you're interrupted and, and pay attention to who's interrupting you a lot, and that person needs more structured one-on-one time, right? If that person can just pay attention, well, this person's always interrupting me. Well, guess what? You're the boss. Pay more attention to that person. And, it, and if that person is interrupting you at the least convenient times when you're in the middle of something important, then at least use that hook to say, okay, let's schedule a one-on-one for tomorrow at 10 a.m. You know, and that's you prepare, I'll prepare, let's talk tomorrow. Because obviously that person needs more of your attention. I love that. Yeah, well said. And I think people I think people discount how valuable our attention is too, because if you look at if you compared the the largest oil companies in the US, which they mine very important resources, you know, it, it could come out to be about five hundred two to three, maybe 500, depending on how many companies, billion dollar market cap. But then if you compare it with say Meta, that's almost got a $1 trillion market cap. When you see that comparison, it really puts things into perspective because what does Facebook do? All they mine is human attention. They don't mind oil or other, any, they're, they're mining human attention. And so that's how valuable our attention is. And if we can direct it to other people, it doesn't take for very long, but that that's an important asset that we have. And if we want to lessen loneliness, when is loneliness lessened? It's when attention is received. And so I think being much more valuable with our attention, wielding it undivided and fully is really, really important. Ryan Jenkins, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thanks for having me, Bruce. The podcast is going on hiatus for a couple of weeks while we prepare another round of great episodes. We hope you join us when we return on April 14th. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.